Lord, would you help us today? Would you help us to grasp what it is that you are saying to us through Mark and his gospel? Will we have hearts that are humble and teachable this morning? And Lord, help us to truly be mindful of our relationship with you and what scripture is screaming at us from this text. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, this, this passage that I read is so full of statements that we've heard in Christianity. We're actually pretty comfortable with, right? I mean, there, there, there are statements in here, you know, who, who do men say that I am? You know, and who do you say that I am? And then a little later uh, in, in the, the, the dialogue, um, you know, Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. And there's some of these statements, they're, they're powerful. They're, they've been part of our Christian upbringing. You know, there's a, a very well-known man by the name of A.W. Tozer who a number of years ago uh, made this statement. And it's become a classic statement because it contains, uh, I think, significant truth. It's very, very simple. It basically says this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me just say that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He goes on to say, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. And what he's getting at here is what I said at the beginning. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Our view, our understanding of God is so critically important for us. So what comes into your mind when you think about God? What comes into your mind when you think about Jesus? You know, this is the Christmas season and Jesus is sensationalized. I mean, in the sense of he's just, this, he's this cute little baby in the manger, right? And so people have this view that this is, this is who Jesus, all about the, the, the wonder, it's all about the aura, it's all about kind of the, the, the mystical stuff. But who is this Jesus? How do I know him? And so the Gospels are asking questions like, who is he? What is he like? Why did he come into the world? What does he want from me? We've talked about those questions over and over again. And the answer to those questions are many and varied, and there are clear answers from God himself if we have eyes to see. So there are three questions that the gospel seeks to answer. Who is Jesus? Secondly, what has he come to do? And third, how does Jesus want his followers to live? For the first part of Mark's gospel, the emphasis has been on who is Jesus. If you look at the whole of the gospel, you're going to find that our text actually is a transitional text. Because we move from just focusing on who is Jesus to what he has actually come to do. And that comes up a little bit later in our text. But then the rest of the gospel not only reinforces who Jesus is, but shows us then what he has come to do. But then the question is, how do we as his followers live? 
Now, why are these questions so important? And here, here's, here's the, the, the logic of the flow that we must see. And I think our text gives us the logic of this flow. A wrong view of Jesus will result in a wrong view of the gospel. And a wrong view of the gospel will result in the wrong view of how we are to live. And a wrong view of how we are to live will result in us walking around in blindness. Turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8. I just want to show you what Peter says here about this blindness. And he's speaking here to believers. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8. And this is picking up the end of a, of a what's called the, the, the kind of list of the tree of virtues. Um, and, and actually, let me, let me just begin at verse 3 and read it all the way, because I think you'll see it driven home here. Peter says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord, and Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sin. You see, friends, even for believers, it's possible that we can actually be converted and still living in such a way that we are walking around with a nearsighted vision. And we struggle with our eyesight. And the result of that when we have a wrong view of Jesus and a wrong view of the gospel and a wrong view of how we are to live is that we can live our lives in such a way that we're actually blind. And it says in that text, we're, we're useless, we're unfruitful. That's not where we want to be. When we have a, a God who's revealed himself to us, we want to be able to see clearly. Now let's just consider the setting of this text. Mark is writing his gospel to Followers in particular who are in Rome, who are under the cloud of suffering. And so to encourage them, Mark is emphasizing their need to follow Jesus in their suffering and on mission with what God has called them to do, to live out the gospel in their context. In other words, he wants them to see clearly what they are to do and how they are to live and who it is that they're worshiping. So surrounding our text today... Mark chapter 8, 22 through 9, 1. The emphasis has been on sight. Let's just go a little bit back to um, Mark chapter 8 and verses 14 through 21. There we have the story of the feeding of the 4,000. And what is it that we saw there? 
that even after the feeding of the 4,000, which is the second time the disciples went through this, now they're in a boat and they're, you know, Jesus is speaking to them. And remember last week, they just, they just weren't connecting dots at all. All they could think about was the fact, we don't have any bread to eat. They didn't have eyes to see. They had only earthly eyes thinking about the filling of their own bellies or distracted about the things that are around them, the, the temporal things. They couldn't see that Jesus is the bread of life. And all they see is a miracle worker, a prophet used by God. Yes, their master, but they still didn't quite comprehend who he was. And, and Jesus is just like, proverbially, banging his head against the wall, right? In the sense that they're not seeing it. And yet at the same time, this is all part of the divine plan of unfolding um, that is taking place with Jesus and the disciples. And then if we look at chapter 9 and verses 1 through 13, what do we have there? It's called the transfiguration. And what happens there? We have kingdom eyes. We move from earthly eyes to kingdom eyes where Peter, James, and John are brought by Jesus and they see the kingdom at Jesus' transformation. They see Jesus in his glorified state. Their eyes are open. They have a glimpse of Jesus in his glory. So now we turn to our text today where we'll find something that I think will be helpful for us. Because what we have here in this text is Jesus confronting our fuzzy faith, I'm calling it, so we can see clearly. Now, I'm a little older these days. Years ago, when I was in high school, the whole phenomenon and the whole product of a contact lens came into being. Some of you may remember back then, there were different kinds of contact lenses. I suffer from myopia, short-sightedness, nearsightedness. But they had these things called glass contact lenses. Anyone remember that? Anyone ever wear glass contact lenses? Oh, those were awful. I mean, they, they, you, you literally had to callous your, 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 your eyelid in order to endure those glass contact lenses. Then technology was great, and they had these things called the gas permeable lenses. And so I had the privilege during my, uh, my well, the junior year to have some gas permeable lenses. And what was horrible about the gas permeable, that was actually fun as, as a teenager, is that I could be sitting in class and you could actually move them around your eye. So I could, if, if the teacher was really boring or something like that, I could actually be playing games like you know, with my eyes and stuff. The teachers probably thought, oh, this guy is really, really weird, you know, because his eyes are going all over the place, right? But it became a habit of just kind of playing with these things because they were small and they would, they would rest and just kind of float around. The problem was I also played soccer. And contact lenses, if they were glass or they were gas permeable, were, did not go well with sports. In fact, if you were playing a basketball game during that era, and some of you may remember this, you'd be in the midst of a basketball game, and boy, the, the, you know, it's just intense, and the team is, is coming back on a charge, and, and all of a sudden, the guy goes up for the layup, and the referee calls you know, a foul, and then all of a sudden, you have a guy who's saying, I lost my contact, I lost my contact, because they would pop out. And then you had all these team players that are crawling around on their knees looking for the contact lens, right? You guys remember that? And then the guy would pick up the contact lens. Do you remember what he would do? Stick it in his mouth 
and then he'll put it in his eye. Okay? So that, that, that's the era I'm talking about here. I know that's just eons ago. But I played soccer, and I couldn't wear my contact lenses. And so our team was, uh, was the Springfield Christian Eagles, and our colors were uh, purple and gold. So when we played soccer, I knew who my teammates were. Why? Because there were a bunch of Barneys running around the soccer field. They were all purple. I couldn't, I didn't know who they were. I just knew that this Barney was over there and that Barney was over there. And he was my teammate. And there was this white thing that kind of moved around the field. And I was supposed to get that, right? Um, and then between my junior and senior year, my parents uh, raided their savings account and purchased for me some soft contact and I put those in my eye, and I could not believe that I could see. I mean, I could actually see my teammates. I knew who was over there. It's not Barney. It's, it's Fred or whatever his name was, right? I could see the ball. I could see blades of grass. It was wonderful. And, of course, the best part was my contacts didn't pop out. Now, there's, there's a benefit, friends, to having corrective lenses. You, as a result of having those lenses, can see clearly. And many of us struggle with that. And we're thankful for corrective lenses. In a similar way, seeing clearly in our spiritual walk will radically impact our lives. So here, once again, I say Jesus confronts our fuzzy faith, our spiritual myopia, so that we can see clearly. And in our text... Marcus purposely structured his text to drive home the heart of that by saying this. First of all, we, we, we have fuzzy faith illustrated, we have fuzzy faith exposed, and then we have fuzzy faith challenged. So first of all, with the blind man, he illustrates this fuzzy faith. Now, one might mistakenly believe that the writers of the Gospels just kind of haphazardly gathered Stories and kind of threw them together and just kind of say, all right, let's just throw this in chronological order or whatever it might be. But that's not how it, it worked. There, were, there, was a, there was a purposeful way, in particular, that Mark was using the accounts of Jesus and, and structuring them because he wants his readers to see something. And if you've noticed, we are in the midst of this season of sight, so to speak. Last week, this week, and when we get back to Mark, Again, with the transfiguration, this is all about sight. And, and along with that is the, the ability to hear and the ability to speak. All those are, are part of the themes that Mark is illustrating here. So it's helpful to note, as best I can tell, that this is the only case, chapter 8, 22 through 26, in the Gospels where Jesus performs a partial healing. And it's a healing in two steps, and we're going to consider why. But let's just begin at verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him, that's Jesus, to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him. Let's just stop there. If you've been with us in Mark you will notice that there's some similarities to what's going on here to other times when Jesus performs some miracles. You have this, you know, it's people bringing a person, which happened with the deaf mute just a little bit before, right? You have this, this begging that's going on. 
And just like the deaf mute, which was in chapter seven, or, or sorry, earlier in chapter eight, was it chapter seven? Um, here we have Jesus taking him away, away from the crowd. But here Jesus takes him out of the village. And what does Jesus do? Again, he spits, right? And he touches. This man is understanding that there's something going on. Jesus is going to be doing something with, with my eyes. So it's worth noting that Mark is presenting Jesus as the one who heals the deaf, the mute, and the blind. But there's something deeper going on that Mark is wanting us to see. And see if you can catch it in verse 24 as we continue on. He asked him, do you see anything? And how does he respond? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. This is what it looks like for those of us who are short-sighted, who do not have corrective lenses. When we don't have our glasses on, it's a blur. People look like trees. It's actually a pretty good description of what it looks like. Um, you guys right now, I, I know who you are because of colors and all that kind of stuff, but can't make you out. Um, but when I put the glasses on, I can see clearly. But what's happening here is that this man has not completely received his eyesight. So there's this sense in which this is incomplete. It's still fuzzy. It's still not clear. But now look at verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything what? Clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not enter the village. So what is the point of this miracle? What is the point of this healing? Did Jesus simply not have the power to, to finish the task the first time? I mean, is that what he's doing? Is he just playing around with this guy? So I'm going to heal you a little bit. <laughs> just want to toy with you. No, there's something purposeful, something deeper going on. What we have here is an illustration of fuzzy faith. A partial sight, a fuzziness, and then clarity that ultimately comes. And so there is this illustration, this illustration that helps us then to understand and to interpret what is about to be presented by Mark. Now follow along with me now as we look at the disciples. With the disciples now, Jesus is going to expose this fuzzy faith. And it begins with two questions. What are the two questions? Two questions we know. Why or who do people say that I am? Now, how do people answer that question today? I jotted down a few thoughts just that came to mind. Jesus was a good man. He's a good example for us to follow. Jesus was a prophet. He had many wise things to say. Jesus was a revolutionary like many others of his day, fighting for what he believed, a cause that he was, uh, he was behind. Or, or Jesus is a, is a champion and fighter of justice for the poor and the underprivileged. But notice verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others the one of the prophets. As you go through the Gospels, you'll read the comments of the multitude or the crowd in the wilderness and in Jerusalem, and they're all speculating as to who Jesus is. And this is kind of a summary of their thinking. 
But the next question is a little bit more penetrating. It's not just what are people saying, but he's now speaking to the disciples. I mean, you've been with me for a while. We've, we've shared ministry. You've been a part of miracles. You've heard my teaching, all this stuff. And he asked the question, but who do you say that I am? Verse 29, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, friends, it may be very, very tempting at this point to say, Peter, yes, man, you've got it. You see it. You have, you have the answer right. You, you answered Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. And we're ready to jump up and down and celebrate and to rejoice because he finally gets us. He's seen the light. Man, what a special day. What a day to, to go down in the history of Jesus and the disciples I mean, you can almost hear the hallelujah chorus going on in heaven behind that. But friends, I would encourage you to hold on to those thoughts. At face value, it seems that this is the right answer. But what we really have here is Peter's fuzzy faith. Now, is it true that Jesus is the Christ? What's the answer to that question? Yes. But we're going to find out that although Peter had the right answer, answer, he didn't know what the answer meant. In fact, he has a different idea of what that answer is. Have you ever experienced that before? Have you ever taken a test? Maybe for you it's been a long time. Or maybe it's at the DMV or something like that. You're sitting there, you're taking a test, and it's a multiple choice question, and you're using the Rod Phillips method of choice. I know we've talked about this before. Four fingers, A, B, C, D. Whop! Whichever one throbs the most, <laughs> that's the answer. Don't tell me you haven't used that method before. I know you have, right? You have no idea what the answer is, so you figure out there might as well be some mechanism, some system to this at least, right? And lo and behold, you get the answer right. But you have no clue why. And at that point, you probably don't care, right? You're just thankful you got the answer right. So here's Peter, and he's sure he has the answer right. Don't you love Peter? He's always the first one just to speak out. And he goes, you are the Christ! Yeah, you got the answer right. And he's thinking, Jesus must be the Christ. That's, that's what he's been claiming all along, but Peter has his own ideas shaped by Jewish culture that are distracting him from the truth. He might have the right answer that Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't have a clue about who Jesus truly is as the Messiah. Right? In other words, what does he actually come to do? Like so many Jews, Peter was waiting for the Christ to come and to overthrow the Roman control. And as a result of that, deliver Israel from that bondage. He was looking for a physical deliverer, a political revolutionary. So when, when Peter is saying, you are the Christ, he has in mind one thing, where of course Jesus has in his mind something completely different. You see, there's a fuzziness to what's going on with Peter here. And Mark is illustrating you say, well, wait a second, Pastor Roy. How do you know that's the case? Let's read on. 
Because notice in verse 31, this is the first time Jesus now begins to unfold what he has come to do. This is a key text in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter um, 8 and verse 31 and 32, he said, it says this, And he began to teach them, the disciples, that the Son of Man, of course that's referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. But note this. It says, and he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> now, there's some things that you should never do with Jesus, right? And Peter just doesn't quite get that. But the reason he's rebuking him is because his mind is full of his own ideology of what this Messiah is supposed to be doing for Israel. So Jesus here emphasizes clearly and plainly that he must suffer. Now this statement is repeated uh, and, and added to as Mark continues his gospel. So look, look if you have your Bibles open. Um, and let's just kind of just look at these passages quickly. I want you to see this. Mark chapter 8 here is where we're going to begin. But I want you to, to note these other texts. Look at Mark chapter 9 and verse 31. Again, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But notice what it says in verse 32. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Look at chapter 10 and verse 33 and 34. See, Jesus is saying, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief uh, priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. See this is all news in the gospel of Mark. We have on we've only been hearing about who Jesus is but now the emphasis shifts and Jesus is saying this is what I have come to do. I'm heading toward Jerusalem, and this is what's going to happen when I get to Jerusalem. The religious leadership, they are against me. They are going to kill me, but I'm going to rise on the third day. And that, to, to Peter's ears, doesn't make any sense. Because they're thinking the Messiah would rule and reign on the throne there in Israel. The concept of a Messiah suffering was foreign to them. To this day, friends, the Jews reject the interpretation that Isaiah 53 is actually pointing to Christ because they say the Messiah cannot and will not suffer. Now, see, they're looking for a human deliverer, but Jesus has come not just as a human deliverer, but as a spiritual deliverer. He is coming as the very Son of God, as the substitute, as the Savior, as that sacrifice once for all. So you see how Peter's view is really fuzzy. And get this, he had the answer right, but he didn't know what the answer meant. Let me ask you a question. Is that ever true of you? been a part of the church for a while. 
You know the right answers. But do you know what those answers mean? Let me just step back a little bit. You come to faith, and you begin to learn about the things of God, and, and you lean on someone who is, who is godly, who is spiritual, that you respect, and they're teaching about the ways of God and the, and the, the character of God and things like that. And, and there's a sense in which you're, you're in the beginning stages. You're beginning to learn, and so you're leaning on this godly person and, and their wisdom and their understanding, and there's an appropriateness for that where, where someone who's older and more mature is leading you along. And so you answer and say, yeah, Jesus is God, but, but maybe you can't like, open God's word and just prove that from God's word. You haven't gotten to the place where you've got the handle of those things yet. But part of our discipleship, part of our growth in Christ is to move from the place of fuzzy faith to the place of clarity so that we can see clearly what it is that Jesus is, is doing and who this Jesus really is and then ultimately what we are to do. So then Jesus, in verse 33, he rebukes Peter. It's bad enough to rebuke Jesus, but you don't want to be on the other end when Jesus rebukes you. Look at verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, um, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Now, there's a lot of things I've been called in life, but this is not one of them. Jesus is not playing around. But he is identifying something. He says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus speaks to Peter and the disciples saying this, your view is distorted and rooted in man's thinking, which is ultimately sourced in Satan. He is the one that is bringing up the ideologies that are opposed to the ways of God. He is the one that is behind this kind of false thinking. Secondly, you can't see the things of God because your eyes are blinded by the things of man. And friends, if this is true of Peter growing up in his culture where they had the Old Testament and they had an awareness of the Messiah from the word, it's possible then for us too, when we have the word, to be so affected by our culture and the thinking of our culture, even our Christian culture, that when we come to read the word of God, we read it with the lens of the culture and not the lens that God would have that would be Christ himself. And so we end up having distorted views about who Christ is, what the gospel is, how we are to live. Do you see this fuzzy faith? Do you see how this illustration moves us into understanding how Peter, one of the key disciples, is also fuzzy in his thinking? We've got to ask ourselves the question, is this true of us? But now, with the multitude, Jesus challenges it. He challenges it. This is the how should we live section. Now see if you can catch what Jesus says is the clear view of life from verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I think we could confidently say that the clear view is simply those three statements. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. This is a clear call for suffering. This is a clear call to say, I am, through thick and thin, following Jesus Christ as my Lord, as my master. 
But there is a fuzzy view that we're going to come into now. That's the clear teaching. That's the clear instruction. But notice now the, the fuzzy side of things. But Jesus paints a picture in three parts about a fuzzy view of life. Let's see if you can catch what Jesus says is the fuzzy view. Verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So the first fuzzy view of life is saving or preserving your own life. In other words, it's all about me. I've got to preserve things. I have to make sure that I'm number one. Secondly, we continue reading verse 36. What does it profit if a man uh, is to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So secondly, the issue here is gaining all you can in this world. Saving your own life, gaining all you can in this world. Again, it's all about what I can get. Our culture is, is all about more, more, more. Get more money. Get a bigger house. I know you don't need it, but just get it, right? Get that bigger TV. Get that nicer car. You know, get more gold, get more, more, more. Now, we've got to back off a little bit and say it's, there's nothing wrong with being wise with the things that God has given you and making sure that you are doing things to make sure your family is doing okay. That's just a practical side of wisdom. But I'm talking about the sinful desire for more and more. It is insatiable. It's just always, as Proverbs says, it's crying, give, give, give. And it just, it's just sucking everything out of you. I mean, Christmas season is like that, right? Just gotta get more, gotta get more, gotta get more, gotta get more. But when you stand before the Creator on that final day to give account of yourself, your stuff will be meaningless. Let me let me just put it this way. Um, someone like Donald Trump, set aside the fact that he's the president of the United States. He is a wealthy man, right? If he wants something now, he can just tell his, you know, his aides, go get me this. Got the money, it's covered. When he stands before God on that day, his stuff will mean nothing. And the real issue is, do I have a right view of Christ? And as a result, do I have a right view of the gospel? Because without those two things, I'm going to have a fuzzy awareness of what it is that I'm supposed to be doing. Verse 38, here's the next one. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels. And so here's the third thing, and that is being ashamed of Jesus and his words. See, it's all about loving the world rather than loving Jesus and his words. It's about wanting to be sure that you're, you're fitting in with the ideology of the culture that you're living in or the generation that you're in. That valuing that is more important than valuing what God says in his word. And friends, there's always a pressure for believers to adjust what God says to fit in with the culture because we don't want to be seen bad in the eyes of the culture. 
oh, we don't want to be the objects of any ridicule. So let's just back off a little bit. I know the Bible says that, but it's okay in this situation. It's about valuing the opinion of others who are opposed to God and his world. It's about having a low view of Christ and a low view of his word. Now I see clear faith then, if you're using those same, those same categories, is by implication marked by the following Losing your life. Which implies suffering. In other words, enduring suffering and persecution because of your identity with Christ and doing it for the glory of God. Or experiencing shame and reproach because of your commitment to Christ and doing that for the glory of God. Secondly, by implication, it means forfeiting the pleasures of this life or this world. For the glory of God. You don't have to have more. You don't have to have more. More will not bring you more satisfaction. In fact, more might bring you a lot more headaches. And third, joyously living and identifying with Jesus and his word. So losing your life. Forfeiting the pleasures of this world. Joyously loving and identifying with Jesus and his word are, in a sense, the opposites, then, of this fuzzy faith. This is clear faith. God is saying, lose your life for me. Don't be so tied to the pleasures of this world that you can't serve me, that you won't serve me, or that it gets in the way of serving me. Are you willing to identify with me, even if it means people are going to mock and to scorn you for being a follower of Christ. Now let's go back to what I said at the beginning. A wrong view of Jesus will result in a wrong view of the gospel. If I get Jesus wrong, it means I get the gospel wrong. If Jesus is simply a good guy, then the, the gospel is simply a different kind of good news. If I have a wrong view of the gospel, then it will result in a wrong view of how we are to live. And if we have a wrong view of how we are to live, then we will be walking around this world in blindness. Now, let me, let me give you the, the, the positive side of that. I'm just going to state it differently here. A right or clear view of Jesus will result in a clear understanding of the gospel. Does that make sense? In other words, we've got to see Jesus clearly. That's why Mark has been laboring to say, this is who he is. He's the son of God. This is what he comes preaching. He comes preaching the kingdom and the gospel of that kingdom. A clear understanding of the gospel will result in a clear picture of how he wants us to live our lives. If we understand the gospel rightly, then we are not going to live our lives somehow trying to impress God so that maybe he'll accept us into heaven because that's not how he wants us to live. He wants us to live out of the grace and the mercy and the freedom that comes in the gospel than to do good works for his glory. There's a freedom, there's a joy that comes out of that. But if we have a wrong view of the gospel, it changes then how we are to live our lives. And if we have a wrong view, sorry, if we have a, a clear picture of how he wants us to live, then we, we will not be blind, but we will be growing. We'll be effective. 
will be fruitful, going back to the second Peter passage. See, Jesus says, I didn't come into this world to simply be a moral example for you to follow. In other words, an example of how perfect humanity should be. I didn't come into this world to offer physical care to the poor, the blind, the diseased, and the homeless. And some people have relegated Jesus to that. Now, certainly he demonstrated compassion for those people, and, but his mercy ministry was not the end game. He didn't come into the world to simply be another prophet that God used to inspire people. He, he didn't come into this world as an angel to point you to Jehovah. He didn't come into this world to take my place as ruler of this world while my brothers and sisters do the same thing all around the universe. I'm pointing to Mormonism. Jesus didn't come as a revolutionary to overthrow the wicked government so that enslaved and oppressed people would be liberated. That's not who Jesus is. That's not why he came. That, those are ideas that are forced on the idea of Christ from the scripture. But that's not what the scriptures teach about Christ. Jesus says, I came for something greater than that. I came to reconcile you to God. I came to redeem you as my people back from their sin. I came to adopt you as sons and daughters into my family. I came that you might have life, everlasting life, and abundant life. I came to go to a cross to suffer and die as a sacrifice once for all so that all who would hear my gospel and believe would be right with God and would know how to live their lives in order to please me. But if we have a distorted view of Jesus, we'll have a distorted view of the gospel. If we have a distorted view of the gospel, we'll have a distorted view of how we are to live for his glory. So here and now, Jesus is confronting all of us, even rebuking some of us. In his love for us, he wants to move us from the place of fuzzy faith to clear faith. And friends, that is the heart of this passage. He wants you to, to embrace the seriousness of what it means to see Jesus clearly. Is that your desire? Do you want to see who he is as scripture actually reveals him to be? For him, it's important that you wouldn't be satisfied with, with giving the right answer. You know, it's kind of like we call them Sunday school answers. You guys probably remember. Maybe it happens here. You know, the teacher's up in the front. And they're like, okay, you know, who's, who, 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 what's, this, what's this passage about? And who's, you know, who's, who's it really talking about? You know, if you don't know, you just say, Jesus, God, the Bible. One of those answers that the teacher will be happy with. Right? Right? But that's not, that's not what it means to actually have clear eyesight here. He's saying, I want you to have a hunger for the truth. When you're thinking about the, the themes here of, of, of the bread of life and, and, and all of that intertwined here with the ability to see and understand clearly, he wants us to hunger for the truth that would liberate us and show us how we are to live for his glory. He desires that you and I would take our pursuit of Christ seriously, recognizing that only Jesus, only Jesus can open our eyes. Only Jesus can reveal who he is. Only Jesus can reveal how we should live. 
And it's also worth us noting that often our blindness and our understanding comes from those influences around us. I just remind you, you guys know what these are. I mean, you, you watch TV, you, you watch movies and the themes that are in there, whatever's been talked, talked about in context of those things. On the internet, there's all sorts of stuff. The lyrics and songs, the, the political agenda of certain political parties uh, that you may embrace, or even athletes and entertainers and what they have to say seems sometimes far more important to us than what Christ has to say. Because we value their opinion. We value their thoughts. Now, the reality is that you and I are being shaped by our culture to have particular views of Jesus that are in opposition to what scriptures teach. And are we aware of those things? Are we mindful of those things? Are we careful to ask ourselves the question, is this what the scriptures say? And this passage is warning and encouraging us to be discerning. It's also a call for us to be, to be humble and teachable. That we would even have our preconceived ideas, our earthly ideas, exposed for what they really are. Let me, let me bring this down then with three concluding thoughts. I know I teased you there with having the word conclusion up there, but some concluding thoughts. Number one, I just want to emphasize a warning. Don't settle for fuzzy faith. And I say this, friends, I say this because it is my opinion that our American evangelicalism is rampant with fuzzy faith. So don't settle for it. See, it settles for a fuzzy view of God, a fuzzy view of the gospel, and a general fuzzy view of how we are to live. Now, this past week, I was watching TV with my, my wife, and um, we were watching a, a show called When Calls the Heart. You guys have ever seen that? It's a pretty wholesome show. It's Canadian, um, which doesn't mean that it's wholesome. I'm just saying it's Canadian. Um, but uh, this was like their Christmas special thing, and, and uh, we were watching it. And, of course, <clears throat> you know, the, the, uh, being a Christmas special, there's always this, this dilemma that happens. And the, the question is always, what do we have to do to save Christmas, right? That's always the plot line, right? You know, something happens. And in this case, what happened was, you know, they were in this town kind of, kind of outside in the country, and, and there was a train supposed to come, and on that train were all the presents for all the kids, and what's going to happen because this train couldn't get through because of the snow and the blockage and all this kind of stuff. It's not going to be there in time for Christmas, so we've got to do something. And so the whole community gets together, and they make toys, and it's all just this wonderful sentimental type stuff that's going on. And they eventually have their Christmas program where the kids in the community are all part of the Christmas nativity. It's encouraging to see a nativity on, on a TV show like that and actually talking about using the words that are in the scripture, except they said clothes rather than cloths, but that's a whole other thing, right? They're swaddling cloths, not swaddling clothes. That's a, just a pet peeve. Anyway, um, <laughs> all right. these are Christmas things that we just say without realizing, right? And after the play was over, the pastor gets up to say a word. Now, you have to understand, as a pastor, when on a, a movie or in a story, a pastor gets up, I'm always very sensitive to what they're about to say because I just, you know, I'll be say something right. It's good. And he says this, the Christmas story is about God showing us how much he loves us. And part of me is thinking, okay, 
So far, so good. He's mentioned God in the Christmas story. That's good. And he says, by sending us his son. All right, this is good. God, he's talking about the son. And then he says, so what God wants us to do is to be like him and love one another. And I'm just like, ah, An opportunity lost replaced with sentimentality that overshadows why God even sent his son. Now, I realize that's a TV show, but my point is this. That many Christians will probably sit there and listen and watch and say, isn't that great? They had the gospel on this show. No, they didn't. It was a partial gospel. And friends, a partial gospel is not the gospel. You see, when we settle into this nominal Christian culture because that is what everyone else is doing in this kind of American evangelicalism, fuzzy faith cares little about doctrine and theology. In fact, those two words, doctrine and theology, are almost like, Bring those up because that will divide us. That's going to cause more trouble than anything. No, it's going to bring clarity. Fuzzy faith is more concerned about church being an event than a gathering where God's community of people can come and worship and celebrate and, and learn and be equipped. Fuzzy faith gets more caught up in the politics of this world rather than the sharing of the gospel or the equipping of the saints. Fuzzy Faith loves the word grace, but is very uncomfortable with the words sin and wrath and judgment. We began our service today with Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved. It's great. But God, because of his love, yeah, if you read a few verses back there, what you see is wrath. That's what you're destined for. But fuzzy faith doesn't want to talk about that. So friends, there's a warning here. Don't settle for fuzzy faith that is so rampant in our Christian culture. Desire to take things deeper. Secondly, get regular eye exams. I know Probably everyone in here goes to the optometrist at least once a year. If you don't, you probably should. No one's paying me to say that, okay? But you know when you go there, they put you through a bunch of tests, don't they? Everyone loves the glycoma test, don't you? Yeah. They'll put your head up here. We're going to blow some air into your eye. Yes, it's wonderful, right? And you're going to blink. No, no one likes that one at all. But it's necessary. It's important. Why? Because if you get glycoma, that's not a good thing. Then they get the mini flashlight and they're, you know, all your life you've been told, don't ever look into something bright, right? Don't look at the sun. Don't look at, you know, when they're doing um, welding and stuff. Don't look at that kind of stuff because it will damage your eyes. And yet you go to the optometrist and they're pointing this, this light right in your eye. And they're looking in the back to see if everything is fine back there. Then they do the vision test, of course, where, where they're, they're asking over and over again, you know, which is better? Is it A or is it B? Is it C or is it D? And then when you're done with that, they do the astigmatism test, right? Where they turn it a little bit, they turn it a little bit, turn it a little bit. Now, my point here is this. 
I think you get the, the, the idea of this analogy and its biblical parallel. Every time we come together to study God's word, what is it that God is doing with us? He's saying A or B. A or B. A or B. You see, he doesn't want us to have spiritual fuzziness. He wants us to have spiritual clarity. And so every time you're gathering for a Bible study or every time you're opening your Bible for your own personal time reading your Bible or under the preaching of God's word, the same thing is happening. God is adjusting your view of Christ. He's adjusting your view of the gospel. He's refining it. He's moving you from the place of fuzziness to the place of clarity. And you'll have to choose between unbelief for faith or humility and pride or self-sufficiency or God dependency. See, Jesus is always confronting our fuzzy faith so that we can see clearly. He wants us to see the truth and not be lured away by deceitfulness that is so rampant in this world. The third thing is this. I call it a challenge, but it flows out of this text. Be committed to discipleship. What are the three statements that are made in this passage that Jesus identifies what true discipleship is? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Denying self, are you committed to God's will or your will? That doesn't mean that you shouldn't have passions and you shouldn't pursue things that you have passions for. The point is, are you living your life in such a way that you are under his care, under his hand, under his direction, under his wisdom? You're denying self. By saying, God, what you want is far more important. Are you taking up your cross? The idea of carrying the cross, of course, is identifying with him and being willing to suffer all that happens when you identify with him. And if you're carrying a cross, you're saying, I'm a Christian, and you're bringing on then those who would mock and who would scorn and who would bring persecution and suffering. That's what disciples do. They're willing to live like that. And then he says, follow me. Not the guru on TV, not you know, not some um, internet kind of, um, you know, kind of kind of blog or group or something like that. No, he's saying, follow me. Let me be the one who is directing you and guiding you and strengthening you and teaching you. He is to be our leader, and we are to follow his words and his example. And friends, see, God wants to move us from this place of fuzzy faith to clear faith. And he wants that for all of us. Lord, help us today to consider these words. Consider, Lord, where maybe in our lives we have some fuzziness, some areas where we have just neglected to be precise, or we've believed things that aren't necessarily true about you or your gospel or how we are to live. And we realize, Lord, that that you're taking us on a journey where these things are going to be un unpacked and, and revealed. And Lord, help us to, to respond in a way, Lord, that would not be to rebuke you or to say, no, that can't be true, but to say, okay, Lord, if this is true, then give me wisdom to know what I need to do next. Thank you, Lord, for being 
clear with us. Thank you for, for demonstrating your love toward us and sending your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross on our behalf, bearing the, the wrath that is deserved for our sins, dying, rising again that third day, and demonstrating by that resurrection that you are the Son of God who came to redeem his people. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do.